We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And you might wonder why 2 Corinthians, and the reason is um, just trying to teach you the whole Bible, and I've, by God's grace, we've actually taught through all the books of the New Testament except 2 Corinthians and, uh, and 2 Peter and Jude. And so, Lord willing, we'll be finishing up the New Testament uh, not too far distant in the future. But uh, this is a tough book. I, I thought about it. And and reading through it, it's kind of tough in many ways. But before we dive into it, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, to the book. What we find is that Paul the Apostle, he planted the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. And so you can read that in Acts 18, 1 through 17. Uh, Unlike the other church plants, most of the time he would go there, he would stay there maybe a, a few weeks or a month, brief periods of time. But in Corinth, Paul ministered there for 18 months. He was there for about a year and a half. And he just poured into the congregation, loving them, teaching them. Uh, it was a, a blessing. It was a miracle to have a church in Corinth because it was a, what we would consider a very carnal city, a wicked city, uh, if I could say this, not to demean any city, but it was like the Las Vegas of the day or the Los Angeles or New York. Basically, a big city with big problems, right? But God did a a great work there in Corinth. But what happened was this, that after Paul left Corinth, because he was a moving missionary, just following the Lord, uh, just a lot of uh, corrupt things crept into the congregation. And it became a very carnal church where there were divisions in the church. There was sexual immorality taking place among them. Uh, Christians were going to court against other Christians. And rather than first trying to work it out as Christians, There was confusion in their services. There was uh, no order. Tongues uh, seemed to be the priority there in Corinth rather than prophecy. And by that, I mean the straightforward teaching of God's word. And so much so, it was so crazy that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so the Corinthians were a very gifted church, but what was happening was they were abusing those gifts, they were exercising them without the biblical parameters, without discernment, and probably most importantly, without love. Um, It was kind of funny, because we love church potlucks, amen? And we really do. The best food is there, I'm telling you. You know, but uh, even in their church potlucks, which in those days were called love feasts, there was no love, man. I mean, you know, they were bringing their good food. The rich were looking down on the poor, not really wanting to share their food, kind of like me with my French fries, right? But a lot worse, right? Uh, the Corinthian church, after Paul left, they just they took a dive. They digressed, so much so that Paul had to make a painful visit back to Corinth, and that he wanted to confront the people. It still didn't make things better. 
He then wrote a, a letter to them. It's a severe letter. We don't have it. It's a letter of correction. He sent it with Titus to the church at Corinth. And we're going to see this as we go through this letter. And, and Paul was just wanting them to come back, man. Uh, Paul was in Ephesus. And then Paul traveled to Troas. And you'll read it as we go through here. And Paul's just pacing back and forth, right? Uh, wondering how they would respond to the letter that he wrote to correct them. And uh, we're even going to see as we go through our study that he had opened doors to preach the gospel in Troas, but he didn't. He just couldn't wait to hear how they were doing, and so he traveled over the sea to Macedonia, and, uh, and, and then he waited to hear from Titus, who the, was the one who was carrying the letter. Eventually, Titus returned to Paul with good news from Corinth. It was pretty good news, and that was this, that the majority of the church in Corinth had repented. But there were still some within the congregation, there was still a minority that hadn't. They were still in rebellion against him, right? And undoubtedly, these were problem people in the church who wanted to continue with their divisions, their false doctrines, their emphasis on the gifts, over and above the teaching of the word. But the only way they could accomplish their agenda is if they attacked the leader. If they attacked the leader, if they got to the pastor, if they got to Paul, then they could have their way. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, they attacked him and his apostolic authority. They slandered him. They talked smack about him in their attempt to diminish the work of God in the church of God. And even though Paul was the one who planted the church and was commissioned by Christ, uh, they came against him, even trying to spread a lie that Paul didn't really love them. And so we're going to see that in this letter. It's a, it's a very heartfelt letter. Some people call this letter the anatomy of an apostle. What we see is that in this letter, Paul kind of wears his heart on his sleeve, making himself very vulnerable, just kind of laying it all out there. And we're going to see it's a great letter, dealing with these things, uh, looking deep into Paul's you know, heart, and, and really seeing what the ministry is all about. And we're going to see today even. It's a lot, a lot of suffering. Now again, most of the church had come around. But there were still some in the congregation who hadn't. Uh, and Paul, in this letter, he appeals to them. You know, and, and for us, you, know, you might be thinking, well, why? If most of the congregation is on board, if most of the congregation is supportive then why is he, you know, even dealing with this? You know, why can't he just be content with having, let's just say, 90% that are on the same page? And the reason is this, because those 10% that are still in rebellion, that are still not supportive of their leader, are, uh, are in danger to themselves. And so Paul writes this letter because he loves them, but secondly, Paul writes this letter because he loves the entire congregation. And here's the thing, you guys. When people in the church get divisive and unruly and disorderly, rejecting the God-given authority, then that infects the rest of the congregation like cancer. And Paul knows that. And so Paul writes to them because he loves them. And Paul writes to this whole church, why? Because he loves the Corinthians. And so we're going to see that 2 Corinthians is a very personal letter. And, and to me, I don't know about you guys, how you feel about this, but it's almost like a, a sad 
you know, story that a pastor would have to defend himself like this, especially someone like Paul, you know, that he was forced, he was kind of cornered to make his case in order to prove his calling. Uh, And for Paul, it wasn't just a pastor, it was a pastor's pastor and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he's forced to do that, and he does a really, really good job. Um, Look what we read in in verse 1. It says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, Paul identifies who he is and how he is who he is. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You guys know an apostle is a delegate, it's a messenger, it's an ambassador, it's a representative. You guys know Paul was saved and sent by Jesus Christ, right? And and it wasn't according to Paul's will, it wasn't according to man's will. Uh, He says right there in verse 1, it was according to God's will. And so it comes from Paul and, and Timothy, their brother. And if you guys go back to Acts 18, you'll find that both of these men were used by God to plant the church and It had probably been planted about four years prior to this letter, written. And so he identifies the writer, he identifies the recipients there in verse 1. Notice, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And so he identifies them, uh, even though they're a carnal church, they're still the church of God, right? They still are. And uh, they're the people of God with all the saints. And you guys know what a saint is, right? A saint is someone who was canonized by the Catholic Church, right? No, I'm just joking. A saint is someone who's just, they're a Christian. The word hagios, it just means set apart. We have Juan right here. You can call him Saint Juan if you want to. (laughs) But uh, he probably wouldn't like that. I mean, we're saints. We're Christians. It's, It's Paul the Apostle. It's it's just an authoritative letter. This is the Bible. This is God's word to God's people. That's all it is, right? But accept it as that. And accept, you know, the writer, accept who you are in Christ. You know, I, I know that sometimes I look in the mirror and sometimes I look at my own life. And all of us here, I think if you, if you know the Lord and you know yourself and you're honest about the situation, you realize that we all fall short. Remember, I've told you, the best of men are men at best. And if you think you're all that, then you're probably even worse than the rest, you know? We're sinners. We're sinners who are saved by grace. Jesus died for us on the cross. He shed his blood for all our sins. And when we give our life to him, we are free. We are forgiven. We are clean. We are white as snow. We can know for sure that when we die, we'll go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a great person? No, because I have a great Savior. And in that, what we are is we're saints, right? And so that's who we are. Look what it says in verse 2. A typical greeting, but I pray it never gets old. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what we find right here is grace and peace often in the Bible Uh, They're kind of like Siamese twins, uh, peanut butter and jelly, Manny and Shelly, grace and peace. They they just go together, right? I always say that. 
You know, the Greek word is charis, the Hebrew word is shalom. It's kind of like the Greek greeting and the Hebrew greeting. The two most beautiful words in the Bible. Thank God for his amazing grace. It's unearned, it's undeserved, it's unmerited favor. It's what we receive when we receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives. It's such amazing grace. And in that amazing grace, when you understand that you are accepted in Christ, you're accepted, yes, you are accepted in the beloved, it's only then will you find the peace, the peace with God, and it's the peace of God, right? And so, you know, in one sense, a typical greeting, but it's just so beautiful to see. And then the letter begins in verse 3 with praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, it's kind of interesting, just as a, a side note, that there are only three places in the New Testament where we see such expressions of praise. Uh, one is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's the, the expression of praise of something that's taken place in the past. So he's already blessed us. He chose us. He's blessed us. With everything. It's a praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father. Praise you, Lord, for what you've done in the past. And then there's another one over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What that is, is praise, not for the past, but now praise for the future. We have a living hope. It's a hope. It's a certain certainty about the future. I know one day when I die, I'm going to heaven. I know one day when I die, I will be reconciled with my God and my Lord Jesus Christ face to face, and I will see my loved ones. And it's a beautiful expression of praise for the future. But then here's the third one, and what we find here in 2 Corinthians is it's an expression of praise for the present. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations. And I just pray that you guys know that you can praise God for the past, I, I pray you would know you can praise him for the future. And I just pray that you would know you can praise him for the present. No matter what. No matter what. I mean, when you look to the past, you realize that he chose you and he blessed you before the foundation of the world. And, and he will even take, when you look to the past, everything that you've gone through and use it for good. You can praise him for the past, and you can praise him for the future in the land of the living and in our home one day in heaven 
we can praise him for the past. We can praise him for the future. Even if it's filled and flooded with troubles and tribulation, even in your present, you need to know that your creator cares and will comfort you along the way. And so I just love, I love the way that Paul is going through what he's going through, man. But he, he begins with uh, praise. And I want to encourage you guys to do that. As you go through the hard times, people come against you. It doesn't matter what your situation is. You guys know this, right? Prayer changes things and praise changes things. And primarily, praise and prayer change you. And that's what you do. You know, I've been in hospital rooms with men who didn't know whether they were going to live or die. But I was just so blessed to see them raise their hand and say, praise you, Lord. I praise you in the good times. I praise you in what might be considered to be the bad times because I know you're going to turn it around and use it for good. Here we see Paul praising God for what he's done, for what he's going to do, for what he's doing and, and for who he is. Look again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You know, we don't primarily praise God for what he's done. We really should primarily praise God for who he is, right? You know, and here we see he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you know the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's mentioned at least 10 times in this later, although not here. And, and although we know, you know, there's three members of the Godhead, all equal in function and office and essence, what we see is the Father is highest. And for that reason, Paul praises him as the Father who gave us his Son. Paul praises him as the Father who shows us his mercy and Paul praises him as the father who comforts his people. We're going to see the word comfort or its equivalent over and over again in our text today. Notice again right there, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And, and this word right here is an interesting word. The Greek word is paraklesis. You know what it literally means, you guys, that when God is comforting the God of all comfort, it literally means calling to one side. That's what it literally means. And what we find is that it's a summons in order to offer comfort and encouragement. It's a summons in order to offer, in one sense, an alleviation from grief. But what we find is that comfort is rooted in the, the fact that it, it simply takes place in the presence of the comforter as he comes to our side. You know, you might find yourself one day going through difficulties, and I know, you know, I've been through difficulties. We all have. There were times I didn't want to wake up in the morning. I didn't want to carry on. I didn't want to go on. And I got a knock at the door. A couple of friends, they took me, and they just were with me. And just their very presence comforted me. And what we find is that that's exactly how God comforts us with his presence, with his Holy Spirit, who is called the comforter, who comes to our side in those difficult times. You see, Paul here expands on comfort in verse 4. Speaking of God's comfort, who comforts us, he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all 
our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, what this God of all comfort does and where and why he does it are all here in verse 4. What does God do when you're going through difficult times? He comforts you. Where does he comfort you? In your tribulation. Now, most of us here would rather have him comfort us from our tribulation. <laughs> Lord, get me out of this. I don't want to be here. This hurts so bad. God, I can't handle this. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And God says, I'll comfort you there. As you go through the fire, I'll comfort you there. As you go through the flood, I'll comfort you there. This is what I will do. I'm the God of all comfort. I will comfort you in your tribulation. And the word tribulation, it literally means a, a pressing together. It's a pressure. Metaphorically, it speaks of oppression or affliction or tribulation or distress. And, and God says, I will comfort you there. He, he tells us what he will do and where he will do. And he says, this is why I will do it. Notice it says right there that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, it's important for us to know that God himself comforts us. But he comforts us not to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters. And what we find in that God's amazing plan is he's just using our trials for the lives of those around us. Remember, it's not just any comfort. It's the Father's comfort. And when we comfort others, that's what we aspire to offer not just human comfort, but divine comfort. You know, God comforts you so you can comfort others with his comfort, not yours. And I know that, and I'm sure a lot of you here are aware of that. Like when I go do a hospital visit, I, I still feel 100% unworthy and unable and inadequate every time every time but when I go I ask God to minister to these people oh yeah man you've done hundreds of these you know you should be a, a little you know confident by now but I don't have any self-confidence because I know who I am and when we go comfort people, we don't want to offer them human comfort. We want to offer them God's comfort, divine comfort. You know, and that's why uh, we read here, Paul says, this is what, you know, you need to offer. And this is the way that God works. Uh, Thomas Kempis, he said, all human comfort is vain and short. You see, when we're called to comfort hurting hearts, we are called to offer God's comfort through human vessels. 
And there's a huge difference between my comfort and God's comfort. And, you know, even underlying this and looking at the very definition of comfort, I, I think it's helpful. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, we must not think of comfort in terms of sympathy because sympathy can weaken us instead of strengthen us. God does not pat us on the head and give us a piece of candy or a toy to distract our attention from our troubles. No, he puts strength into our hearts so we can face our trials and triumph over them. You see, that's the comfort that God offers. It won't be my presence. It will be God's presence. It won't be my words. And I think that's very important to know as well. It will be God's words that offer comfort. Because you guys know this, that people can't stand on our word. But they can stand on God's word. You know, I, and again, not to be, you know, weird or anything, but sometimes people go and they offer their own wisdom. They go and they offer their own human cliches. You know, and they might go to someone and they say, don't worry, every cloud has a silver lining. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, those are nice sayings, and I think I know what's meant by them. But you and I, we need to go with God's word. We want to bring God to them. We want to bring them to God. And we really need to ask God for the wisdom in that. You know, we weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15 says. And, and as you're there, you're asking God for tangible ways to love them and to serve them. And maybe you'll bring them a meal or maybe send them a card or maybe after the funeral, you'll give them a little money. And when the time is right, and it might be right away, but... There's the, uh, the time in which God's perfect time comes to pass and you comfort them with God's word taken in context and applicable to their situation. If you don't have a passage to give them in context, then call the church or somebody and ask them, what does the Bible have to say regarding this? And that's the way we comfort. You know, eventually I think uh, promises like Romans 8.28 you know, they come around, all things work together for good to those who love God. God's going to take everything you're going through, and I want you to know he's going to use it for good. Or, you know, John 16, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Life is hard, and, you know, we live in a fallen world. But this is just a temporary place. This is just a pit stop, Right? Uh, maybe a big pit stop, you know, but one day we'll be home. That's what Jesus said. You know, in heaven, there'll be no more sin, no more sickness, no more devil, no more death. You can read that in Revelation 20 and 21. See, we want God's comfort. If if you guys know where Isaiah is, uh, keep your mark in Second Corinthians. And real quick, I just want to read to you a passage from Isaiah 51. Just how the Lord wants to be the one to comfort and how we want to comfort with God's comfort. Isaiah 51 and verse 12, this is what God says. I, even I, am he who comforts you. You guys, isn't that cool? I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid? Why are you afraid? It has nothing to do with you, God says. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Don't be afraid of a man who's going to die and the son of man who's going to be made like grass. 
And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Think about all the galaxies. God spoke them into existence by the power of his word. God made this world that we live on. He keeps it spinning every single day. That sun shining, your heart beating. That's the God that you want to have confidence in, right? He says, you have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor. When he has prepared to destroy, and where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loose, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. You see, God's on your side. And God just says, I want to be the one to comfort you. If you go over to Isaiah 66, 13, since you're already in the book of Isaiah, God the Father says that he will comfort you. This is interesting. As one, you will be as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. I don't know how it was with you growing up. Maybe your dad was a, a gentle guy. But, but nine times out of ten, when you were really hurting, when you really got a boo-boo, you know, when you scraped your knee, and I, I, and I still trip out on my kids. I'm all, I love you just as much as she does. Why do you keep going to mom? <laughs> because there's something about that mother's comfort and tenderness. And God is saying, I see what you're going through, and I understand it's difficult. I tell you what, I'm here for you. Let me comfort you. Even as a mom would comfort her child. And so what do we have to do? We have to know who he is and praise him for that. He's the God of all comfort who comforts us so we could comfort others with his comfort in a very glorious fashion. Back in 2 Corinthians Look what he says in verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. You see, and we're going to see this later, especially for leaders. If you're here and you want to serve the people by being a leader, or if you're here and you want to be a right-on Christian, then you're going to know two things. Number one is suffering. And number two, the comfort that comes after you suffer. The comfort that comes while you suffer. And it increases. Right here, the truth is, great suffering brings great comfort. And it makes us great comforters. You know, I've told you many times, it really does seem to be um, the greater the battle, the greater the blessing, the greater the pain, the greater the purpose. Here we see the greater the crisis, the greater the comfort. And Paul speaks of sufferings that he says right there in verse 5, abound in us, and then the consolation that abounds through Christ. The word abound right here, it suggests the picture of an overflowing river. And what we find is that as Christians who really want to serve the Lord and as Christians who are called to leadership, crisis and comfort, they flow, they overflow abundantly. And you guys hear what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know if you realize this. Were you aware of this when you first got saved? Were you aware of this type of abundant life when you received life as a Christian? 
You know, I think most of us are more familiar with other passages like Proverbs 28.20. It says, a faithful man will abound with blessings. I like that, Lord, you know. Or Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You know, we love all the riches of being a Christian. In Ephesians 1.8, it says, which he made to abound toward us. That's what the Bible says. But here in 2 Corinthians, we read that as Christians, when we aspire to being right on as his people and servant leaders for his people, we're bound to abound in the sufferings of Christ. And so here's the thing. When you go through the difficulties, you know, don't let it catch you by surprise because if it does, you guys know how it is when you used to box? I know you don't box anymore because now you're Christians, right? But when you were boxing, you always had your guard up because you knew that that you knew that that guy's going to try to take you down, right? With his with his strong right, you were always ready. And when you're when you're in this battle, and you're learning the way that it works, you're ready. You know, you're ready for those blows because you know it's part of that call that you have as Christians. You know, when you go through suffering, and I need to go faster here because otherwise you might be suffering uh, for a long Bible study. <laughs> so pray for me here, man. But when you, when you go through suffering, you need to examine it. Why are you going through suffering? Why? Now, for some of us here, we go through suffering because of our sin. In John chapter 5, there was a man who was lame, and uh, Jesus came and healed him, but after he healed him, he said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And I'm not saying that to beat you up, but I am saying that to lift you up. A lot of us here, we're going through suffering because of the things that we have sown in our past. You guys know that, right? All right. There's also another type of suffering. It's the suffering because of the fact that we live in a fallen world. You know, this world, sin entered it, it fell. There's earthquakes, there's, you know, calamities. Another example might be in John chapter 9. When this guy was born blind and the apostles, they asked Jesus, Hey, who sinned, him while he was in the womb or was it his parents? Because they thought somebody had to sin for this guy to be born blind. And Jesus said, neither. No, it's because we live in a fallen world. So sometimes people suffer because of their sin. And if that's the case, then just make sure you've repented. Sometimes people suffer because we live in a fallen world. And if that's the case, just realize that. But there are other times that people suffer because they are serving the Lord faithfully. Like these 21 Coptic Christians who were killed. Like these people in the 60 world, in the 60 countries around the world that are being persecuted and executed. And out of all the sufferings, that last one is the best. And let me ask you a question. Are you suffering because you're sold out? And I know some of you here are. You're, you're being persecuted. You're going through hard times. But I would venture to say that maybe some of you, you're not. You don't need to be comforted because you're already comfortable. You're not suffering at all. The devil doesn't even have to come against you because you're not coming against him. 
That's why when uh, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, if that ever happens to you and you, you suffer for righteousness' sake, he says, rejoice, rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven. That's why in the book of Acts chapter 5, when they were, you know, brought before the authorities and threatened and, you know, you know beaten, it says they rejoiced because they were able to suffer shame. For his name. Now, not that I have a you know some morbid mentality or like a death wish, but I, I I would like to suffer more for doing what's right, because it's a good sign. It's just a good sign. And Paul the apostle said, for us it was abounding the suffering, the, the trials. It was abounding, but the consolation was abounding as well, right? And what we find in the Bible uh, is that we should suffer. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We should suffer if we're following Christ. Uh, Secondly, we will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so when we're there, and hopefully one day it's because of our faith, then 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. We should be suffering for our Savior. We should be suffering like our Savior. You know, one day, you guys, when we stand before God, um, he's not going to scan us for money. How much money did you make, Manny? You're not going to scan us for medals? You know, how many human awards did you win? He's going to scan us for scars, right? I mean, what we find is that we need to suffer. Paul said in Galatians, I I don't let anybody bother me anymore. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, right? Do you have any scars for following the Lord? I hope so. I like what Amy Carmichael said. Uh, she has that beautiful poem, Hast Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand, and I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star, yet hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against the tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compass me, I swoon. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? It's a heavy poem. I know guys don't like poems, girls do, hopefully. <laughs> And I think the principle is true for all of us. And it's especially true for us as leaders, which is the direction that Paul goes in in verse 6. He says this, Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. You, You see what Paul's saying there as a leader? These guys didn't want him to be their pastor or their pastor's pastor. They didn't want to acknowledge him as an apostle. And yet what he's doing here 
is he saying, and yet we have sacrificed for you. We have suffered for you. We are afflicted for you, for your comfort and salvation. And then, yes, we're comforted for your comfort and salvation. And we're going to see that throughout the letter. Uh, one that's real clear is over in chapter 4. Look at verse 15. For all things are for your sakes. And the reason why Paul was such a great apostle and minister is because he was willing to suffer and sacrifice for the people. And that's what he's trying to communicate to them. The word afflictive, it's, it's related, it's actually the root of the word tribulation, and it just speaks of being pressed as grapes in a, in a wine press. And what Paul basically says as pastors, as leaders, as servants, as ministers, we go through what we go through for you. You know, for your consolation, your comfort. And that has as its fruit, he says right here, endurance, so that you're going to be able to do one day the same thing that we're doing. And so we suffer for you, you suffer for them. And then they suffer for them. And then they suffer for them, and it just goes on and on and on. Just like passing the word. We pass that baton of difficult times. And so he says in verse 7, and our hope is for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so you also will partake of the consolation. And, and I think, and I got to hurry up here, you know, he's partially giving us a pattern. You know, this is just across the board for Christians to know, but I think he's primarily communicating his credentials. He's saying, you don't want me as a pastor. You're rejecting me as an apostle. These false teachers have come in to try to turn you away. I want you to know I really do love you. I really am real. I've been chosen by God, by the grace of God, and I've sacrificed and suffered for the people of God. You see, real ministry is not easy. So Paul says this. He says to them, before you criticize me and ostracize me, Maybe you should know a little bit about the work and the worries and the weight of leadership. Maybe you should consider the calamities and the constant cares and concerns that I carry for you. And he's going to go on throughout the letter, and even in chapter 11, he talks about all the crazy things that he went through. And then he closes that chapter by saying, and all the concerns that I have for the church all day long, heavy on my heart. And again, he's not saying this for sympathy. I don't think that's really why he's saying it. And I don't think he's saying it to win them over to himself. I don't really believe that was his motive. He's saying this in sincerity. He's saying this to win them back to God. And in this letter, what we see is that he has to defend himself. And in closing, we, we see in, in verse 8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust, 
that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And and in closing, this is kind of how it goes down. Paul founded the church. He left the church. They turned on him. He visited them. They still didn't change, and he wrote them a letter. Some of them changed, but some of them didn't. There was a small minority that didn't, and so he's appealing to them through this letter. And, you know, he has to come to this place to tell them about the sufferings that he experienced as an apostle. 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus. 2 Corinthians was written from Macedonia. Both of them were written within months. And what we find is that Paul here is just saying, hey, you know, and, and in, let me tell you this. I, I, I used to kind of keep it a secret. <laughs> I didn't tell you this before, but, but I, I can't keep it a secret any longer. I've been through, going through some real hard times. I mean, I fought with beasts in Ephesus. And when I was there, there were many adversaries. The spiritual battle, I can't even begin to describe to you. This is basically what he's saying, right? And and the thing is, is that in going through all that for you, man, God showed himself strong. God comforted us, so to speak, in in that crisis. And, And now, man, we trust the Lord even more. See, God's doing a work in him, and God's doing a work through him. And what we see, you guys, in looking at this is that Paul is just trying to bring them back to that place where they can be a healthy church. Man, the church that is led by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the church that's led by Paul. Yeah, he was chosen by Christ, but it's not his church. It's Jesus' church. And that's all he wants them to know. I mean, you guys think that, you know, this is easy. He's saying, there were times where I didn't even want to live anymore. I despaired even of life. But I knew that I had to go on for the people of God. And so what he's saying is that, you know, I went through all that. And I know in that last verse right there, he's talking about how uh, even through their prayers, you know, God delivered him. And, and what he's just sharing is just so cool because he loves them so much. See, sometimes people look at Paul and they say, well, you know, the reason he's doing this is, you know, he's got his own agenda and his own motive. And, and again, if, if you want to, I, I guess you can make that accusation. But I don't think it was for him. I think it was for the Lord. I think it was for the people of the Lord. And what we find in that is he's dealing with the church. He's giving us principles that I, I think are important to, to understand. You know, in closing, and I know I already said that, but I just this is my second time, okay? <laughs> you guys are so cool. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that three times. <laughs> you know how it is um, sometimes when, uh, when you've gone through something, uh, Dr. Belowian, I remember a long time ago, he talked about how uh, he went through a deep depression and he didn't understand why. You know, he searched his heart, there wasn't sin, he just found he didn't have a reason for it. All he knows is that he went through it. Okay? After the Lord brought him out of that depression, 
he, he one day he met someone who was going through that same depression. And, and what he realized is that God brought him through that experience so that he could minister to the one that God would bring into his path one day. Here's the thing. For Dr. B, there wasn't a person. It was God who strengthened him. Kind of like Paul says here. But then there are those times where God uses a person like Dr. B to strengthen others. You know, it's kind of like this story I read. I don't know if you guys have heard of Douglas Marr. Uh, he was only 15 years old. He was sick for several days. His temperature ranged from 103 to 105 degrees. He had severe flu-like symptoms. And so finally his mother took him to the hospital in St. Louis where he was diagnosed with leukemia. The doctors were up front with him and they said that for the next three years he'd have to undergo chemotherapy and operations, that he would go bald, that his body would bloat, that it would be a tough, tough, tough road. So upon hearing that, he fell into a deep depression. So his aunt found out what was going on and she called to a gift shop and she sent him some gifts and she told the clerk that it was for her teenage nephew who had leukemia. When the gifts arrived, uh, they were just what Douglas wanted, but he didn't receive comfort from them. When the gifts arrived, there was a card from the aunt, but he didn't receive comfort from that either because there was a second card in the package, and what it was was from the individual that worked at the store who had gone through leukemia when she was seven years old. She said, I'm 22 years old now, and my heart goes out to you. It's kind of funny how Douglas was in the hospital filled with uh, millions of dollars of sophisticated medical equipment, and he was being treated by the expert doctors and nurses with hundreds of years of combined medical training. And he had his aunt, and he had his siblings, but it was, his, it was a sales clerk who in all reality was a stranger, who was the one to comfort him. Why? Because she had gone through the same thing. And when she comforted him, she comforted him with the comfort that comes from God. I pray that God would use our lives. I pray that God would encourage us to know that even in those tough times, there's a reason. So be ready, man because it goes both ways. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, Father, for this promise. Lord, as I look out into the congregation, I know there are people here who have gone through a tremendous difficulties. And yes, some of it may be brought upon themselves, some of it maybe not. I have a feeling it doesn't really even matter. Lord, I believe that you will take all these things that we've gone through in life and with the comfort that you have given to us, we can then be used by you to offer that comfort to others. And Lord, I pray uh, just for any here today who might not know you who aren't Christians, that today they would know you as the Lord and Savior of their life. Bless your people, Lord. Continue, Lord, to carry us through. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.
We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.